0: Pastors here, and before we get into our series today, um, I want to tell you uh, that today is the start of one of the best times of the year. Yeah, 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 Christmas is coming. Woo! I really feel like you're not sharing my same enthusiasm. Christmas is coming. This is awesome. Here, here's the deal, okay. Here's my conviction. Here's my personal conviction. You don't have to agree with me. God gives you the right to be wrong. Okay. The 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 of all the people in the world, there should be no one more excited than us when it comes to Christmas. Sometimes I think that uh, we as followers of Jesus, we've kind of been baited in this trap of you know we uh, you know commercialization of Christmas and all this kind of stuff and all these you know side things and we're like well you know. Well, we've, we've got to be a bit more stoic about it, right? But no, this is our holiday, right? Of, of all the holidays, besides Easter, right? There is probably no holiday we should celebrate with more recklessness, with more aggression, with more excitement, with more energy than Christmas. I mean, Easter, okay, Easter, yeah, culmination in Jesus' ministry. He, he dies, he raises again, so we can all have life. Like, incredible, like that is the center of our faith. But the story begins with God coming here. (laughs) Have you been here? I heard someone one time say, you know, there are probably aliens out there, but they looked at earth and went, not worth going there, right? But God, the creator of everything, he came here. And so here's the deal, okay? Um, We, as a church, we celebrate Christmas big right? Um, we do this thing called Xmas and MCC, and before you get really nervous, and you're like, whoa, it's a cult, and heretics, and blah, 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 right? Um, just know, like, Xmas, Xmas is not an attempt to remove Jesus from Christmas. In fact, the X symbol, miss, was actually begin by religious leaders, by scribes, by, by um, priests, because The X in English looks very similar to the first letter of Christ in Greek, okay? So it's just shorthand, right? When they're having to handwrite all the scriptures over and over and over again, when they're having to write hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents, they'd start to shorthand and they write X, right? And so um, we do it, here's why we do it, because this like story started out that, you know, like it's, oh, it's this conspiracy to remove Christ from Christmas. And then if you invite someone to church, and you go, hey, you should come to church with me for Xmas and MCC. They go, oh, don't you know what that means? And you can go, oh, yeah, actually, I do it. You know, X, it's a Greek letter. It looks a lot like an X in, in English language. It's first letter of the name Christ in Greek. And so it's all about putting Jesus at the center. This is a celebration of Jesus. I say this all the time to people this way. I say, um, here's the deal. None of us say Christ Mass anyways. That's the old English way of saying it, right? All of us say Christmas as if we're celebrating this guy named Chris. I guess there is a Chris Kringle, but um, that just occurred to me. That's coincidental, okay? Um, Christmas, right? And so we celebrate big. So um, I don't know if the slide did come up or didn't come up or went away or if my TV turned off, which is very possible that it did, which is going to be a bit problematic today because I have a lot of stuff I want to show you. Nope, it's still there. Oh, that turned off the TV, don't do that. Sean, stop touching buttons, okay? We'll see if the tech guys will figure out how to get it up there. Um, uh, Xmas MCC happens this year, December 23rd, which I know is not Christmas Eve, but Saturday, December 23rd, we're having a service at six, and we're having two services on the 24th. Okay, that's close, but that's not the right slide. (laughs) There we go. December 23rd, at Saturday at 6, we're having a service, and we're having two on Christmas Eve at 3 and 5. And I don't know how well you can see that, you just have to re- memorize this. Saturday the 23rd at 6, uh, Sunday the 24th at 3 and 5. And here's our ask, okay? Um, the reason we're doing one on Saturday is if you are not going to be bringing people with you, um, and you can make it on Saturday. If you would come on Saturday to help make space. Now, maybe it just works better for your schedule. Maybe you're going somewhere on Christmas Eve, all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you could come on Saturday, uh, that would be, that'd be awesome. That, that'd, be really, that'd really help us uh, for Christmas Eve. And it's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be awesome. I love Christmas Eve. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be great. And uh, here, here, I saw this stat the other day. And it said, um, post-COVID, Okay, Um, 40% of people who attended church pre-COVID are not attending church now, okay? 40% of the people who went to church anywhere in America are not going to church now post-COVID, okay? 85% of the people surveyed said there was one reason they were not going. It was a bit surprising. To me, it was a bit surprising. There's one reason. The number one reason was my friend's don't go to that church anymore. And if someone invited me, I'd probably go. 85%, 40%. So, so even if we talk about like all the people who don't know Jesus, we live in one of the most unchurched counties and one of the most unchurched states in the nation. I don't know if you know this, okay? We're one of the largest mission fields in America where you live, okay? Besides all those other people, okay? 40% of people who are going to church before COVID are going and all they're asking is for a friend to come say, hey, you wanna go to church with me on Christmas Eve? And so it's a great opportunity, Xmas, MC. Here's the thing, though, that I know, okay? I've been doing this long enough. Um, I know that the way we do Christmas is not everybody's jam, right? It's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. And so here's the deal, okay? Um, if, if you would like a... Uh, different kind of Christmas celebration. I love it. That's great. That's so good. The way we do it isn't the right way. It's not the only way. It's just the way we do it, okay? Or you've got like an aunt coming into town, and you're like, (laughs) I know she's not gonna like that, and I'm gonna hear about it all Christmas, and I don't wanna hear about it, okay? Here's the deal. Okay, sitting around the building all around here, if you're watching online, we'll just have to send it in an email sometime, okay? But um, sitting around the building, all around is this little what's happening MCC, and it's got all the stuff kind of going on in Christmas. On the back side... It has a list of all the churches that I know of in our community that are having a Christmas Eve service. It gives you the time, gives you a little description about it, and here's the deal, okay? If the way we do Christmas Eve is the way you want to do it, or you got family and they want something different, find one of these churches and go there, and then we'll see in January, okay? Like, go celebrate Christmas. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. Celebrate Jesus with everything that you have, and then Join us in January. Here's the deal. I know the pastors every single one of these churches, and I love them. They are great people, okay? And these are great churches, and they love Jesus. And so, man, if it works better for you, if their schedule works better for you, um, go there and celebrate Christmas, and then just join us back in January, okay? Deal. Xmas at MCC, December twenty third and twenty fourth. It's gonna be awesome. Um, when I was growing up, I was not permitted by my parents who are sitting here and they can testify to this, okay? I was not permitted to refer to adults by their first name. It was against the rules in our house for me to refer to an adult by their first name. In fact, it was so, into- here's the deal. Um, Mary Weinbender used to be our kid's pastor. Her and her husband help with a bunch of stuff still. They're around, they may have left already for the service, but if you've, if you've been around, you've met Mary Weinbender and you've met Jack and they're awesome people. Mary was our kid's pastor. When I came on staff, she was our kid's pastor. And um, I worked with her for years and I could not bring myself to refer to her as Mary. I worked with her, and her name was Mrs. Weinbender. In fact, at one point in time, after about six years, I became her boss, and I still called her Mrs. Weinbender. She, she and I were having a meeting one time, a little one-on-one, and uh, she goes, she says, Sean, I'll make a deal with you. She says, if you will call me Mary, I will stop calling you Shawnee, because <laughs> that's what she called me, right? When I was growing up, uh, one of my, uh, my best friend growing up was a guy named Ben Nickel. I, for whatever reason, for some reason, I know that his mom's name is Carol, okay? Carol Nickel. I know her, na- her name's... Most days, I could not tell you what his dad's first name is. Because he's always, he's Mr. Nickel, right? In fact, during first service, there's someone sitting over here, and I'm telling this story, and they go, Paul! <laughs> and I go, you know my best friend? <laughs> Weird world, right? I was not allowed. Be- and it says something. Here's the thing: what we call people says something about the kind of relationship we have with them. When we use a title or a name, or the way we communicate about someone, tells everyone else around us the kind of relationship we have with them. Some of you have gone through this season of progression of life, and you've gone from being, you know, mommy or, sorry, or mama to mommy. To mom, to hey, right? Because it says something. Every time you use that title, it says something to everyone around about the kind of relationship you you have with that person. You know, maybe maybe it's you know it's been a coworker or a friend, and and then there came a point in time. um, It's called a DTR. You ever had a DTR? right it stands for define the relationship at some point in time you're friends with someone and you're going to have a dtr with them you're going to say what, what are we who what, what are we going to call each other right at some point in a relationship and then maybe you decide oh we're going to be boyfriend and girlfriend we're going to be dating whatever we're going to we're going to call each other something different so that when you go somewhere you say oh hey this is so and so my Boyfriend, my girlfriend, right? And then maybe at some point in time, they, they get a different title. Maybe at some point in time in your life, you've, you've called someone your fiance or maybe even eventually husband or wife. Every single time we use those titles, we're telling everybody around us the kind of relationship we have with that, with that person. It's, it's a little bit of like a, a public DTR, a declaration of the relationship we have with a person every single time we use a title. and We see this um, in all cultures. You see this all throughout the Bible, right? You remember Moses? Um, Moses is talking to a bush, right? God's speaking to him through the bush, but from Moses' perspective, he's talking to a bush on fire in the wilderness, okay? He's talking to a bush that's on fire in the wilderness, and uh, the bush is telling him, go back to Egypt, go rescue my people, draw them out, all this kind of stuff. And and you remember one of the questions he says? He says, when I go if they ask who you are, what do I say, right? What name do I call you? What do do I say we are? I am in relation to you. There's this story in Genesis 16. Um, It's this beautiful story. Actually, it's, not a, it's, a, it's a horrifically brutal and ugly story with one beautiful moment in it. Um, it's the story of this woman named Hagar. You know Hagar? She was a servant of Abraham. She was property. She was in the most grotesque and horrible and inhumane way. She was owned by Abraham and his wife. And she was used all throughout her life. She was simply a piece of property to produce things. And at one point in time, she was used to produce a child. And and she eventually gets kicked out. And she gets pushed out of the wilderness, basically to starve and to die out in the wilderness. And God shows up, and he's going to protect her. And he he makes this promise to her that he's going to protect her. And Hagar speaks, and she gives God a name. And in fact, this this slave woman is the first person to ever give God a name. And she says, in this really beautiful moment, she she says... um, She gives him this name and she says, you are the God who sees me. Isn't that beautiful? You are the God who sees me. Every single time I call you by name, I'm gonna call you the God who sees me. When everybody else abused me and used me, you are the God who sees me. It says something about the kind of relationship she has with God. It's not just in the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus, you know, the disciples come to Jesus, and in this um, massively, overwhelmingly profound moment, the disciples ask Jesus, tell us how we should pray. And the first two, the first two words of this prayer are astounding and shocking and cataclysmic in their consequences. He says, He says, This is how you pray. Our Father. It, it, it's amazing. First of all, here, here, there's a bunch of facts about this that are amazing. First of all, he says this. He says, "Our." He didn't say, "My." He didn't say, "Yours." He doesn't say, "The Jewish." He says, "Our." He, he's, he's saying that whatever this God is to us, it is ours together." And, and then he says this he says, "Our Father." He, he doesn't say, which would have been totally appropriate and right. And theologically accurate, he doesn't say, our God who is in heaven. He he doesn't say, our Lord who is in heaven. Our master who is in heaven. Our creator who is in heaven. He says, our Father. The the name you're to use when you talk about this God is, is Father. He's to be a father to you, to us. It says something about the kind of relationship. Every single time we use a title, we use a, a name for someone, we're saying something about the kind of relationship we, we have with them. Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at one passage. It's a pretty well-known um, Christmas passage in Isaiah 9. And in Isaiah 9, it's talking about Jesus coming. It's talking about his birth. But in, in this passage, through the prophet, God gives himself names that we're to call him. He says, this is the kind of relationship I want you to have with me. I want you to have a kind of relationship with me where you call me these things. And so we're gonna spend the next four weeks, we're gonna look at each one of them. The first one is, um, we're gonna see if it pops up here. Isaiah 9, and it is not going to. Isaiah 9. Oh, wow, it's just really slow. Um, Isaiah 9, okay, it says this. This is a passage. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called. The names that you're to call him, right? The kind of relationship you're to have with him. He he says this, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. the next four weeks, we're going to look at each one of these, but the first one we're going to look at today is this one right here. And he will be called. You will call him. You will give him this name. You will have this relationship with him, which you will identify him as Wonderful, beautiful, excellent, majestic, amazing counselor, guide, advisor, shepherd. It begs the question do we need a counselor? Do, 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 do we need to have Jesus as Our wonderful counselor, and here's, um, this might get a little uncomfortable, but here's what I'm gonna say to you. Um, Jesus answered that question pretty emphatically. He does in uh, Luke, in Luke, don't worry, it'll take about 30 seconds. Um, See, look at that. In Luke five, he says this, okay? And this is important. This is applicable to what we're gonna talk about. He says, Jesus answered them and said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Here, here's, um, let, me, let me venture this statement to you and then we'll try and unpack it for a minute. If you are not sick, you have no need for Jesus. If you have no need for Jesus, you are not a part of his community. If you are not sick, you have no need for Jesus. If you have no need for Jesus, you are no part of his community sometimes we get this kind of misguided or we get this impression or you get this impression of other Christians or other church or or whatever that following Jesus is about a bunch of really righteous people trying to do their best to make everybody else feel bad about the way they live their lives. The foundation of our faith is the exact opposite. The foundation of our faith is a public profession that I am a mess the, the, the foundation of our faith is I am so broken, not kind of broken, not kind of a mess, right? In fact, almost every other religion says, yeah, you're a mess, but you're kind of a mess. And then what we're gonna do is we're gonna work on these other parts and we're gonna make these other parts better of you so that the rest of you is not a mess. No, our faith says every single part of me is a mess. That, that, that is astounding, the wickedness that I find in myself. Paul talked about this, right? Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he says, that there's this thing in me. Like, I know what I want to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the right thing. I know that if I, if I had to stand up in front of someone and answer a question and say, what should you do in this situation? I'd go, well, I know the right answer. And for some reason, even though I know what I want to do, what I find myself doing is not that. That I'm so wicked. And here, Jesus says, I'm so sick. Uh, I, I just... I just want you to know that what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize not that humanity's busted, but that you are busted, that you are a mess, that I'm a mess. Because here, look at what Jesus says. If you're righteous, if you've got to figure it out. If you don't need a counselor, if you don't need a guide, if you don't need an advisor, if you don't need a savior, you don't need Jesus. He says a lot of really brilliant and wonderful and majestic and amazing ethical statements. But if that is all Jesus is to you, he is no savior. The foundation of our faith is this recognition in each one of us that all of us is busted and sick and wicked and broken in need of a God who walks with us. And that's the beauty of what we celebrate at Christmas is that God came to walk with us, to guide us, to, to be our counselor. So today, I'm going to give you two points. If you're a note taker, you're going to like that I actually have points today. Um, most of my sermons, I just talk for a while. Um, but I have two points. The first one is this. Okay, If Jesus is going to be your wonderful counselor, you have to be honest with him. You have to be honest with him. Um, I, my predecessor, He told me, he said, when he does counsel with people, he does one session with people, that's it. He said, if I can't fix their problem in one session, uh, I I don't do any more counsel with them. And I said, why? And he said, because if people aren't paying for it, they're lying to you. I was like, well, that's a little cynical. (laughs) He said, if people have to pay for counseling, they're not gonna waste their time and their money lying to their counsel, they'll just not show up, right? If you're not honest if you can't find it in yourself to be honest with God, you're wasting His time and yours. There was a there was a story, a woman at the well. Um, you probably know the story even by its title, and and Jesus meets this woman, and um, she is there getting water, and they have this conversation, and and this exchange happens, and. A lot of times we frame the story, this is not for the sermon, this is just for free, this is just for you, okay? Um, a lot of times we frame the story into say that like, oh, she was like a prostitute, or she committed adultery, or she had some sexual sin, and that's why she's ashamed, and she's out in the middle of the day. And and she there there's a shame thing going on. There's a massive shame thing going on. But um, interestingly enough, if you actually read commentaries about it, and you read scholars about it, there's actually nothing in that text, even though we've perpetuated that story over and over again, there's nothing in the text that says that there was anything wrong with her sexually, right? That she had done anything divided. What's more likely culturally, what's significantly more likely is that she'd had multiple husbands and they just kept dying, that they kept dying or that they, um, uh, divorced her or they left or something. But more than likely she just had multiple husbands die. And when she says the shame part, when she says, when Jesus says, um, and the, the man you're with right now, isn't even your husband. Okay. Um, it's not saying like she's cohabitating, not that she's just sleeping with some random guy. What it's saying is that nobody in this world wants you, that nobody's even wanted you, so you had to go back to your family and you had to go live with an uncle or a brother or a cousin because no one would take you as their own. So there is massive shame. She has been rejected over and over and over, but Jesus is having this conversation with her. And whatever the thing is, right? There is massive. It's an honor-shame society. She's out in the middle of the day. She's not supposed to be in there in the middle of the day. She's alone. She shouldn't be alone. She's out there. And, and, and Jesus asks her a question, and he, and he wants to talk to her husband. And if you've ever felt that shame that she feels— right? If, if there's been something, if there hasn't been, you're just lying to yourself. But at some point in time, there's been something in you that you felt embarrassed about, that you felt inferior about, that you felt insufficient about, that you felt just like a, a horrible mess, and you felt all the shame about. And the moment that someone asks you a question about, there is everything in your body that screams to do the same thing that she would have been tempted to do. And that's to lie. When you feel shame and someone asks you about that place of shame and asks you a question about what led to it, what caused it, what's going on with it, how are you responding to it, the the intention every single one of us has in our body is to lie. But she doesn't. She doesn't. In the moment she's most tempted to be honest Out of fear for the shame she feels deep in her bones, whatever led to that shame, she's honest. And the most beautiful thing happens because you see on the other side of honesty is life. On the other side of honesty is freedom. On the other side of us being courageous enough to be honest with God is just this like, overwhelming joy. Do you remember? She goes running around telling people about Jesus. She wants to lie. That's what we want to do. We want to lie. But in the moment that she's honest, she finds a kind of joy that makes her run around telling people about Jesus. We, We do this thing as a church called Rooted. And, um, uh, week five is, is a really hard week, but it's a really awesome week. It, the, officially, it's called um, uh, There is an Enemy. Um, I, with kind of my, my mom's uh, family past of Catholicism, I call it Confessions Week. Um, and so we all get, part of it is you get around and, and you, you have a moment to be honest with each other. And I remember one of the first times I was doing it, I'm sitting around a circle with like six other dudes and sitting right next to me is one of the most manly men I know. Right, Like calluses on calluses, right? Like his hand would scratch my hand because my hand is so soft every time we shake hands, right? Because the kind of calluses, yeah, just a mm, kind of man, right? And he's sitting next to me. And we're, we're, we're taking this moment to be honest with one another, to, to, to be honest with God, right? And he is, he is um, sweating. His palms are sweating. He, is, he can't sit still, he is so nervous. His face is turning red. Just the intensity in all of his body in this moment, and he, with everything he has, he musters all the courage he can to be honest. And he says this. He says, um, he says, uh, sometimes he can't even look up at us. He just looks at the ground. S- sometimes I, I chew tobacco. And I wanted to go, what? You mean like you chew tobacco while you murder people in your backyard? Like that confession doesn't match this. And the best moment, the best moment, the the guy sitting next to him smacks him on the arm and he goes, me too! I'm so glad you said something. I didn't know that I'd have the courage to. On the other side of honesty, is a kind of freedom that's hard to fathom. We live in this world with an enemy who speaks lies in our heart and we so often believe the lie in the midst of our shame and fear and bondage that if anybody knew the truth and this woman is willing to confess the truth to Jesus and on the other side she finds freedom, if Jesus is going to be our good counselor, our wonderful counselor, we're going to have to be willing to be honest with. Him. Here, here's, here's the astounding thing about being honest with Jesus: um, He already knows. Do you know that? Uh, Romans, in fact, Romans eight twenty-seven. Romans eight twenty-seven. Uh, uh, it, 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 it tells us just this: all our thoughts are known to God. We have this like, thing in us, this shame, and, and this moment we don't want to be honest with them. and in the moment we confess, <laughs> you know what our wonderful counselor says? I know. I know. Our willingness to be honest is an invitation. It's a gift, not to God, but to us, because on the other side of honesty, we find freedom second thing is we have to be willing to be honest with our counselor. The second thing is um, we have to listen. You waste the time of yourself and your counselor. Like if you go to counseling, if you go to a the therapist or something like that, if they're like, you know what I want you to do this week? You know what I want you to do this month? Here's an exercise I'm going to give you. And if every time you come back and you go, well, you know, I thought about doing it, and then I didn't, like you're just wasting in fact, here's the thing: um, If Jesus can be a wonderful counselor, God tells you that you have to listen to Him. Look at this. Look at this. Okay, um, from the voice of God, God is speaking, and He says this about Jesus. He says, "This is My Son, Mark nine verse seven, whom I love. Listen to Him." Jesus cannot be. You can you can put whatever bumper sticker you want on your car. You can post whatever you want on Facebook. You can mark whatever you want on your census. But if you do not listen to Jesus, he's not your savior. In fact, look, look, Jesus says this. Look at this, look at this. Jesus says this. Okay? Um, John, he says this. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. He's differentiating between different groups of people. There are people who don't listen to his voice. But he says this. He says, my sheep they listen. They listen. And more than that, he says, I know them. And they, they they, follow me. Like sometimes we like to make this following Jesus thing like really complicated. We like to put a lot of religious language to it. But here's the simple fact of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means for us to acknowledge that we are broken, sinful people desperately in need of a Savior. Who find a Savior in Jesus and call him Lord. And calling him Lord means that we do what he says. Not perfectly, not always, but the striving and the consistent pursuit of our life is to listen to his voice and follow him. And follow him. If Jesus is to be a wonderful counselor to you, you have to be honest. And I know it can be terrifying. I know it can be hard. I know it can feel so scary. But at some point in time, you have to choose to be honest and say, Jesus, I am sick. And I am in need of a doctor. I'm in need of a good physician. I am in need of a savior. And at some point in time, you have to say, Jesus, you are my Lord. Which means it doesn't always make sense. It's not always going to make sense to everybody else, but I'm going to choose to listen to you. Lastly, there's this story. Um, again, you may know it by its title. The story is called the Rich Young Ruler. This guy comes to Jesus, and and he says, um, he says, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says, "Well, you, you know, you know, like all the follow all the rules, right? Follow the laws." Follow those things. And, and the first thing the guy does, notice the contrast, the first thing he does is he lies. He says, ah, I've done all of those things perfectly since I was a baby, which we all know is a lie, right? I've done all those things perfectly. He chooses not to be honest. And then secondly, Jesus, it says with compassion and love, knowing his heart, he, he, he points out the place where he's being dishonest, and he says, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to sell everything and come follow me. Do you remember how the story ends? It says he walked away sad. He chose not to be honest, and he chose not to listen, and he walked away sad. You see, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. Jesus is a beautiful, majestic Good, guide, shepherd, counselor, compassionate, lover of our souls. The question is, will he be for you? He is a good counselor. Will you allow him to be yours? On the other side of freedom, on the other side of honesty, on the other side of obedience, is a kind of goodness in life that's hard to fathom. But the choice is ours. Will we choose to call him our counselor, our wonderful counselor? Will we be honest and will we listen?